Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Dog Works Radio is sponsored by Alaska Dog Works. Check out their website at alaskadogworks.com. Hi, guys. It's Alex. If you're a fan of Sled Dog Sports and the Iditarod, Mushing Radio is the show for you. Each Wednesday, we drop a new episode on Dog Works Radio. So be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Start your day tomorrow with the Daily Dog with Michelle Forto, the morning podcast on Dog Works Radio. Apple podcast reviewer Patty Christensen calls it funny, smart, and filled with all the info I want to know about dogs. I love this show. Wake up with the Daily Dog, available on Dog Works Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert Forto and you're listening to Mushing Radio here on KVRF 89.7 in the Matsu Valley. You can find all of our episodes over on dogworksradio.com. Make sure you follow us over on social media, searching for the same name, Dog Works Radio, and we are talking about the 2018 Iditarod and the ceremonial start, and joining us from Anchorage is my co-host, Alex Stein. Alex, how's it going? It's going great, Robert. It seems like we've had a very, very long run-up to Iditarod this year. In the past, it, it has seemed like... It's been relatively quiet, but uh, this year, as we've discussed uh, many times, there's just been a lot happening in the off season. And um, while all of those things are important to talk about them, it is great that the race is actually underway, or at least the ceremonial start happened, um, and uh, the race itself will be underway shortly. So. You were down in Anchorage here for the ceremonial start. What's sort of the vibe? I know it's, as we talked about last night, it's always a huge party and looked like there was a big turnout. I was up here in Willow uh, dealing with um, some clients out on our own tours, so it was fun for us as well. But what was the vibe down there um, at, at the ceremonial start? You know, it it was pretty much the same as it usually is, which is, it's a it's a big big party. A lot of people come out. A lot of people come down to Fourth um, Street. Um, it did seem like the crowd was perhaps a little bit lighter than it had been in previous years, but not a lot lighter. There were um, there were a lot of people down there who are just excited to see the dogs run. Uh, a lot of tourists, as there as there always are, tons and tons of volunteers. And we've talked about many times how volunteers come on their own dime from 
all over the U.S. and and actually all over the world in order to help out and work for the race. So that was all going on. Um, There had been a very high-profile announcement that PETA was going to come and protest and uh and while they were there the the protest was very very low key they had um they had several big stuffed uh huskies and they had tombstones representing the uh the dogs that have died during Iditarod in the past uh in the past 5 years um pretty much that was almost entirely ignored by everybody and some people who were there said that they weren't even aware that PETA was there at all. So I'm I'm not exactly sure. But it, it seems like whatever PETA was trying to do was not aimed at the people who were here, and was not aimed at people who are already Iditarod fans. Maybe they maybe they did it in order to get footage that they can use in ads or in, in fundraisers or something. But it was was pretty much ignored. Um, and uh there was actually someone from uh someone from one of the fur stores who was handing out flyers right in front of them and sort of blocking anybody's view who was trying to take pictures of them so uh it was it was as usual a big big turnout and uh people just seemed so excited and of course in addition to the um the 67 mushers who who ran the 11 mile course yesterday there were 67 Iditarod riders who are people who won auctions in order to be able to sit in the sled um, for those 11 miles. And there was just, as always, there was a lot of excitement and a ton of energy. And, uh, you know, there's always, a, a you know, a, a little bit of a hubbub as it's going on. I guess uh, for the second year in a row, Jeff King took a nice little spill, uh, turning the corner down there towards Cordova Hill, and uh, he made pretty much light of it on the news this evening. But, you know, things like that happen, don't they? It's just sort of part of the flair of the race. But it's still a, uh, it's still a, a dog team, and dog teams do what they want, don't they? They really do, and Jeff's spill was was kind of spectacular, in that uh, not only did did uh, he he fall, but his Iditarider was completely dumped out of the sled. Uh, Jeff, to his credit, because you know Jeff King is a is a great dog musher and and knows the rules, held on to his sled. So they they managed to stop the team, get the Iditarider back back in the bag. Um, on the sled and keep going, but it was a it was a pretty it was a pretty amazing spill that he took. And for people who are who are new or might not be as familiar, um, the race starts on on fourth, uh, and then it goes down I, I don't know seven or eight blocks or so, and then takes a big big hard right turn on Cordova to go down a hill, and that has has traditionally been a turn that maybe um, a turn that is hard to make. And every year there are a few people who, who spill or look like they're almost going to spill coming around that turn. So, so I guess it was Jeff's turn again. So you had mentioned uh, uh, the folks from PETA were there uh, protesting or making a stand. And I, 
you know, there's always mushers there that are having their own sort of um, stands or causes that they're representing. I know I saw uh, Monica Zappa with a, a huge uh, flag banner for her Stand for Salmon um, initiative that she's been working on for the last couple of years. And then, of course, I saw Hugh Neff in his, in his trademark um, Cat in the Hat hat. Did you see anything else like that down there? Anybody with, uh, you know, banners or causes or any of the such that uh, that were made prominent? Uh, well, you know, Monica's team, Mo- Monica was probably the biggest one. And there was a great picture, I believe, in the uh, ADN of her in the woods. And a bunch of her supporters came out into the woods because the trail goes on city streets and then, then in the woods and ends up at Campbell airfield and airstrip. And uh, a bunch of her supporters were there in the woods and they, they stopped and and had this sort of mini support uh, stand for salmon party in the woods as she was coming through. And it was just wonderful. Um, I also saw uh, uh, Larry Dartrey who has been a guest on mushroom radio before um, who is running uh, Jason Campos team. Uh, and even though Larry is is an Alaskan and an American, he was carrying the Canadian flag in honor of Jason. Um, so when when Jason asked Larry to run his team for him, he he basically said, you know, think of this as your team and do whatever you want to do and don't even think of me. But uh, Larry Dortry uh, wanted to honor Jason, so he had the Canadian flag in back of him. I did notice when when mushers were heading out that there were a lot flags than usual. There's always been a few flags, but it seems like there were a lot of people carrying flags uh, this year as they were heading out of the ceremonial start. I remember a couple of years ago, Jeff King was out there sort of in an old-timey type uh, mushers regalia. He had the old uh, gee sled, and he was standing in front of it with a pole, and you know it had big furs on and a huge sled, and it was just uh, you know really took you back. Was there anything like that this year? Occasionally there are some of those uh, cooler uh, you know stands or, or, or uh, acknowledgments of things from the past. You know, I didn't I didn't see anything specifically like that. But there were, you know, everyone was, everyone had kind of their own approach this year. It struck me how, uh, you know, in a field of 67 mushers, there were 67 people who were completely and totally different. Um, right. Uh, the um, uh, Mishi, uh, sorry, I always mispronounce his name, but um, uh, uh Mishi Kono um, had a big Japanese flag behind him, and uh, the crowd seemed to love that. And, you know, that, that's the other thing about not only the ceremonial start, but also the restart in Willow. And I think maybe I can extend this to uh, Iditarod fans in general. Everyone, I think, has their favorites, and they have people that they – are particularly fond of or that they really want to root for. But it seems like there is so much of a feeling that all of the fans are rooting for everybody. And, you know, if you think of football games or baseball games um, or or basketball, people want one team to do well 
and don't really care about the other team. But it it seems like everyone I've ever talked to who's a fan of sled dog racing, they want everyone to do well. And then they want their particular favorite to win. But more importantly, they want everyone to do well and everyone to have a good race. And that that is something that I think is really unique among uh, most major sports. Right. So we have just a, a few more minutes left. I definitely want to talk about our uh, featured musher of the day, but I also want to bring up something I saw on Facebook yesterday morning, very timely by uh, Danny Seavey, wrote a very in-depth post on Facebook uh, that really talked about sort of the stance of Iditarod. Did you read that, and can you comment briefly on your thoughts and feelings of that? I did. It's a great, great post, and uh, and anyone interested in Iditarod should should definitely seek it out, and 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 uh, I think we can put it up on our our page as well. Asked um, a bunch of issues, but one of the things he was talking about is the, the whole idea of is mush and humane, and do people overrun their dogs, or or as Peta would say, run their dogs to death. And one of the uh, suggestions that he had that I thought was absolutely fascinating and I would love to see something like this implemented is that when, when mushers leave checkpoints, traditionally um, uh, some of the checkpoint volunteers, especially mushers who have, who have rested for a while and the dogs have, have had a chance to, you know, to have a rest, the volunteers will kind of lead the dogs out and, and you know, dogs a little bit to get the dogs going. And his suggestion was, that uh, once the dogs are in place, the volunteers can't do anything and the musher just has to get them going by voice command. And if for some reason the dogs aren't ready to go, which sometimes happens, uh, that they would have to wait four hours before they would try again to get the dogs going. And his, his reasoning was that that would make sure that people weren't uh, sending the dogs out before they were actually ready to go out and having the prospect of basically a four-hour penalty would stop people from overrunning their dogs. You know, I thought that was a, an amazing um, example of, of a way a race could be changed for the positive. I know we talked about run-rest schedules just a couple of days ago here on Mushing Radio, but just to expand on what you said a little bit, he wanted he wants to see every checkpoint like a starting shoot of of the race. So you you line up, they count down for two minutes or whatever, and then you take off. And if you do not take off, you re, you, you pretty much turn your dogs around and, and have that four hour penalty. And then he expanded on a little further and said uh, the first time's four hours, the next time is eight hour penalty, and the third time if your dogs cannot go is a DQ from the race. And that is a a big time penalty but i think it would put everybody uh you know sort of in the back of their mind on how that they would strategize their run rest schedules because if their dogs uh can can go up to the line and not uh be willing to take off as they should uh you can very quickly find yourself in not only an 8 hour hole but a possible dq just because you haven't rested your dogs enough i think that's an excellent uh, way to change the race for the positive. And the other thing that sort of solidifies the need for the mushers to have great communications and great bonds with their dogs. And we've talked 
several times about uh, sometimes mushers, especially mushers who have so-called leased teams where it's not their dogs, but the dogs belong to someone else who is, who is basically uh, renting them to the musher. And the musher doesn't maybe know the dogs as well, hasn't spent as much time with the dogs. And at a certain, to a certain extent, the dogs don't trust the musher as much as they would with someone who, who had just spent much more time with them. So I think that would, that would change the dynamics with lease teams a lot. Right. I agree. So, yeah, we're going to uh, share that article over on our Facebook page, Dog Works Radio. We'll do that uh, today for you guys to read. And I highly suggest anybody that's really interested in Iditarod or sled dog sports in particular to give uh, Danny CV a follow because that guy there, he, he's got to be one of the the, the better writers in terms of uh, just sort of the, the armchair analysis of, of Iditarod. And by far, he is not, uh, you know, just an armchair fan. He, he has lived and breathed this sport his entire life with the, uh, with the CV family. And I believe he's ran the race a couple of times. So he's definitely, uh, you know, an expert in the field for sure. Okay, Alex, we have a few minutes left. Who are we talking about today for our musher profile? So today we are talking about rookie Emily Maxwell. And uh, Emily Maxwell is from Iowa City, and she is, um, she is running her rookie race this year. And the way that she fell into mushing is kind of interesting. She had been working as a waitress in um, Iowa City and uh, was going through the kitchen holding a tray and dropped the tray and it spilled into um, uh, a can of hot oil and the hot oil um, spilled onto her and she suffered uh, second and third degree burns on 20% of her body, left arm, ear, neck, chest, stomach, and back. So this is a very, very serious and kind of widespread uh, uh, accident. And she was in the hospital for for many, many weeks um, and, you know, was covered in plastic wrap and had to have the uh, the burns scraped and soaked uh, every day. And she said that that kind of made her think about what she was doing and what she wanted to do with her life. Um, as a, In the aftermath of that, her marriage broke up and she was – uh, kind of trying to decide what, what exactly she wanted to do, but knew that she wanted to make a change. And her brother said, well, let's go on this big hike and camping trip. And so they went up to Alaska, and I believe it was at the end of the trip, they were in a bar, and um, and uh, she went over to put money in the jukebox, and Nick Pettit was also in the bar and was kind of watching her, and they were – they were perhaps flirting a little bit, and they both put um, money down on the pool table to play to play the next uh, game of pool. They wound up playing pool against each other, and then they started talking about sled dogs and about what was, uh, you know, what Nick's life was like and what what he was doing. He invited her to come back up and and visit him and and for a sled dog ride and. Then she she did that uh, the following Thanksgiving, um, and as soon as she, she said, "This is what I want to do," 
and she didn't know exactly how that would look or what it would uh, look like or how she would manage it, but she just packed up and moved to Alaska. She lived um, with Nick in a tent for a year, began helping out with his dogs, um, learning, you know, the ins and outs of dog care and of, of sled dog racing, um, and then eventually started running some races, running some qualifiers. Um, she and Nick did a doubles race on the Denali Highway uh, where uh, her her sled was tied behind his, and they had 20 dogs and went over 200 miles. Uh, in 2016, she started entering qualifiers in a serious way um, and uh, now is both Nick's girlfriend and running the race for the first time on her own. And it's kind of amazing because she is, I believe, the first or second person from Iowa who's ever uh, competed in Iditarod. And, you know, uh, although it does get cold in Iowa, it doesn't get to be 50 degrees below zero. And she said that, um, she said that uh, it was very difficult learning how to how to adjust to the cold. She says you never really get used to it, but you learn how to handle it and adjust to it. Um, and uh, is is saying that uh, she said that one of the things that she's liked the most about this is that she's never really been a dog person, but in dealing with all of these dogs and getting to know these dogs on a, on a daily and very intimate level, she's come to appreciate not only the the bond between uh, humans and dogs, but also the differences between a sled dog who we've often talked about is is basically a working dog and your typical um, house pet dog. So this this is a very exciting race for her, um, and I'm sure it's exciting for Nick to have her racing as well. Um, so she'll be heading out. Um, from uh, Sunday, and that it's just a very exciting thing to watch her and know that this this race of hers and this new lifestyle of hers um, is is not to get too philosophical, but it's a nice um, counterpoint to this horrible tragedy that that happened that set all these events in motion. You know. Uh... First off, we are going to have Emily on our show shortly after the Iditarod is over. I reached out to her pretty much last week as, as everybody was in the middle of last-minute preparations to get ready for the race. And I asked her if she wanted to do a quick interview before the race, and she said, no, I'm in the middle of doing um, – I believe it was vet checks or blood work or something for her dogs, but she said she would be happy to join us as soon as she finishes the race in Nome. So not only uh, is she very um, uh, excited to be on the trail, but she's also uh, fully intending on finishing. And I think that's a very important uh, note to make. And she has a heck of a, of a dog team behind her. As many folks have known uh, that listen to our show, Nick Pettit has just been burning up 
the trail this year. I believe he's won every race that he has entered uh, this year, uh, starting in January with the Connect 200 and and so on and so forth. So he is rocking and rolling, and I'm sure Emily will do very well with those dog team with her dog team as well. You know, Alex, when you mentioned that, that is a uh, a very romantic. Um, view of how folks get into dog mushing. Not only is it sort of the romanticized view of mushing, but it's a very common way that people uh, get involved with the sport, isn't it? They, you know, they find out about uh, the sport by doing something else. Sometimes it's a tragic accident or an illness or a lifestyle change. And the next thing you know, they're moving up to Alaska and getting involved uh, with this sport. But they also find not only is it a romantic thing to be involved in, but it's a heck of a lot of hard work. As you mentioned with Emily, it was a two or three year process just to get where she is at today at the ceremonial start. Isn't that right? You know, we've, uh, for people who are new to the, new to Iditarod or new to the um, podcast, it, it can take, it can take several, several concentrated years just to, just to do your qualifiers to, in order to qualify for the race. So, it's not it's not like it was in the early days where you basically mushers would vouch for people that they knew and then those people could just enter the race. Uh so there's you know, there's learning about mushing, there's learning how to how to take care of dogs and how to how to drive a dog team and then there and then once that process is is well underway, then you have to start doing your qualifiers and uh, as as you know firsthand, uh, running races is a totally different beast than uh, just going out and doing runs with your dogs. Right, for sure. And of course, you're you're always at the mercy of the weather. I don't know how many times I have signed up for races uh, well into October, and they fill up very quickly. And then here comes January, early February, and for one reason or another, a lot of times, not this year, uh, but in years past, they've had to cancel some of those races. And if for folks that are trying to qualify for the Iditarod, if, if one or two of those races is canceled, it puts everything that you're doing back a year and you know you just keep plugging away to to get those qualifying miles in to do uh these big races like the Iditarod and of course the Yukon Quest. Alex, we are just about out of time. I know that you are planning on heading up to the restart in Willow tomorrow and we will be back on the air tomorrow night, Sunday night to talk about that and I hope that we can get sort of our top 5 picks for the Iditarod. I know you and I talked about it uh, at dinner the other day on who, who we thought was going to do very well. So maybe we can tell our friends and fans about our picks and who we look forward to, to seeing uh, on the trail as well. And of course, we will have another musher profile of the evening. I do not know who that is yet. Uh, Alex brings them on me when we, when we do the show. So it's always a surprise to me as well. <laughs> Anything you want to say in closing, Alex, before we go? I, I just want to say that I'm looking forward to making my predictions, and my predictions for Iditarod are always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Mine, too. I don't think we would do very good at Vegas uh, forecasting bets for Super Bowls and things like that. I think we'd be in the poorhouse relatively quickly. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> very good. All right, Alex, enjoy yourself uh, in Anchorage, and we'll talk again soon, okay? 
Okay, thanks, Robert. Thank you. On behalf of my co-host, this is Robert Forto for Mushing Radio. Make sure you check us out over on dogworksradio.com, and be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and you will get our daily updates for the 2018 Iditarod right on your device. We will talk to you guys tomorrow. Goodbye. Did you know that Alaska Dog Works trains service dogs for those in need throughout North America? Each and every service dog that is trained through the Lead Dog Service Dog Program and Michelle Fordow and her team has an individual training plan. We train for autistic, mobility, psychiatric, and PTSD for our soldiers for service work. If you know of someone that may need a service dog, please take a moment and check out Alaska Dog Works on social media and at alaskadogworks.com. If you like our podcast, there are a few things you can do. You can take a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also check out all of our DogWorks Radio sponsors and promotions in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go over to Facebook, like our Facebook page, and one last thing, please tell all of your friends by spreading the word about DogWorks Radio. Thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate you. DogWorks Radio is produced by Robert Forto. Logo art by Angry Squirrel Studios. DogWorks Radio is produced in conjunction with KVRF 89.7 in Palmer, Alaska. For dog training advice, you can contact Alaska DogWorks at 907-841-1686 or visit their website at alaskadogworks.com. If you have a show idea or would like to be a guest, please contact us by sending an email to live at dogworksradio.com. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.